Welcome. Welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church, as well as, as family and, and any visitors here. Uh, we do know it is an uh, easy day to drive this morning, so we appreciate everyone here coming on this, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the height of the week of the Christian church, uh, the one and true only holiday to be celebrated on the Lord's Day. Okay, I got a few... Relax. <clears throat> but honestly, I won't be talking about Mother's Day at all today. Just so you, and, and if you come in June, no, I won't be here. But usually, we don't say anything special for Father's Day either. So, as we continue through the scriptures here in the Gospel according to Matthew... We're in chapter 17. I'll be reading, although we'll be focusing on verses 9 through 13, we'll be focused primarily on verses, we will read through verses 1 through 13, the entirety of this aspect of the chapter, this, this story here of the transfiguration. And then we'll be considering 9 through 13 in particular. As we continue through this gospel and particularly this story, there's an aspect that, that was we read last week in the first half of it where, where when Jesus uh, is transfigured before three of the disciples, uh, they are shown his glory. And this transfiguration would have been synonymous with an Old Testament, what would be called a theophany or a revealing of God. And so this theophany that is Christ revealing his glory to these three, you have to imagine, at least if you've been reading the story or you know anything of the gospel accounts at all, that the disciples or the followers of Jesus, particularly as, as I made emphasis when we began the book, was how important it was for the disciple to follow his master. And he was their master, and they were following him, and they were, they were wanting not just to follow and be like him, but there would be a three-year time period through this apprenticeship in this time of this age of, of uh, first century Judaism, where after that three-year period, they would then be expected to go out on their own separately, taking his teaching and then being known as disciples of Christ and then going on and spreading his teaching outward. That was how this relationship had it. What was different here, obviously, is that these disciples were having to reckon with so much opposition. And so when your teacher would go in a public arena and debate another teacher of some different theological view or philosophical leaning, you were just like you are for your favorite sports teams. You're rooting for them. And then you want them to be victorious. But Jesus wasn't interested in having these type of debates. And so what he did in terms of what was different from the stylings of the time, he went out and taught to large crowds. And then he also had these miraculous aspects of healing. And these, these confrontations with the what he would make as adversaries, those who were seen as the religious leaders of the same people who were following him. So all of the teachers of the time 
would still be under the umbrella of the Sanhedrin, these, this group of Sadducees, Pharisees, and so on, that, that we're all agreeing that whoever these famous teachers are, they're still under this authority of the high priest and all those who are over them. And so it's so often why we see in this gospel and the other gospels that even Jesus' own disciples will point to, yeah, but the, but the scribes say so-and-so. But the Pharisees teach it in such a way. And yet Jesus has upended that authority structure. You don't even know the scriptures is what he will tell these leaders. And as such, Jesus' disciples now through all of this, watching him being opposed and wanting his name to be great would have been natural for them. And what they've seen throughout is is great crowds, great miracles, and then a constant adversarial nature with those who they must have assumed would agreed with him the most, the religious leaders of the Jewish world. They were the ones who wanted Jesus dead. And now, prior to this transfiguration, he's told them that he's going to Jerusalem not to sit on a throne, but to suffer and die. And that so, such, has such an effect on Peter in particular that he attempts to rebuke his teacher. Another no-no during this time. And then Jesus has to correct them once again. And then after this correction and after they make pronouncement of the church and all these things based on Peter's profession of, or confession of Jesus as Messiah, he then takes them to the mountain and he shows himself to three of them in his glory. And he, and he kind of peels back the veil of what I called last week of, of showing that the world that as they were focused on was a lie. And, and really, this place that they had with their teacher, Messiah, was going to be a place of glory and eternity that they were going to share with others of the faith. And even the heroes of the Old Testament or the heroes of, of these people, Moses and Elijah, come to see Christ in his glorified state. Showing a window to a different kingdom, another world, the true world that they would inherit. And now, this week's text, after that high, they must come down the mountain. And they must still face the reality that their three years with their teacher won't end with him now going and taking other disciples while they go and take disciples now that they've finished their time with him, he's telling them, no, I'm going to die. So that's where we find ourselves. They still have that reality before them. And yet they've just seen the unimaginable. What they cannot fathom. What they've just laid witness to. And this is where we pick up today. As I read through the entirety of the scripture, I ask that you take uh, time after the reading to pray. Pray the Holy Spirit illuminate your heart and mind. Open your heart and mind to the truth of the word. And Lord, I pray, and when you're praying, I pray that, that you have any unconfessed sins, that you would lay them before God. Reading now from 17, for context, 1 through 13, 
focusing on 9 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. When they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of God. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as your church gathers here on the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the Son of God. The Passover Lamb, the Lion of Judah. Lord, and we gather to worship him through, on this day, the Lord's Day, through lifting up our prayers to you, acknowledging our sinfulness, calling on your presence here in the spirit that we share and now are in union with one another through that shared union with Christ, through the spirit. Lord, we also acknowledging your great works that we understand through the word and through our own regeneration and, and victory we see in our life over sin. 
Lord, and so we lift up our, our voices in praise. And God, through the, the joy of the understanding of, of yet being sinners and rebels, being joined together with a fellowship of the saints here in the local church, And so we take joy in fellowship with one another. As we know, there is no Greek or Jew or, or any other standard before us, whatever differences, whatever our hobbies, our likes, our histories, none of that matters as we are all in Christ. As such, adopted sons and daughters put into the family of God, recipients of salvation, living this life through the work of sanctification of the Spirit and putting to death sin in our lives. As we all look forward to that blessed hope of the return of Christ When in the midst of all of this brokenness, all of the disease and death and war and cruelty of man, we knew one day the Lord will return and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And he will raise those who are dead in Christ to new life. bring in and usher in a new heavens and a new earth with which we will be citizens. Lord, in light of all of that story, we come for this short time to glorify you. May our worship be pleasing to you. May your gospel May your gospel confront us with our own sinfulness, our own waywardness, and our own propensity to self-worship and indulgence. And Lord, may we be comforted by the fact that that same gospel, that the power and the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is always more. Lord, so now may you be glorified in our midst. May the church be edified and lifted up, and may those in unbelief be convicted and turn and repent of dead works. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Prior to that, they have just been told that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. But they acknowledged prior to that even that he was Messiah. And one of the things that that is consistent through all the Gospels is that even these disciples, chosen specifically by Christ, given to the Son by the Father, they still didn't quite understand what any of it meant. And so as Jesus is coming down the mountain... Imagine in the background, if I'm, if, from what I reminded you from what I said earlier, 
Have you ever seen something or been told something that excited you so much that you just couldn't wait to tell somebody? It's, it could be anything, right? I just got a new job. It pays more, less hours. I'm my own boss, and I get to make my office look however I want, pull a bar over there, punching bag there. That's, not, that's obviously my office. I can't wait to tell everyone. Uh, I just got a new car. Or, or put it in terms of someone who just got their driver's license and they've been working really hard and they just paid for part of their new car. They've got their new car. For those of us that remember, the first time that you got a new car, first car ever, it could be falling apart. But it's yours. You worked hard for it. You paid for it can't wait to drive this thing around the world and just shout out the window this is my car and I don't care that they're yelling back you should stop telling people (laughs) so excited the woman that you adore and you're married to before you're married to her. Sorry, I messed that one up. She says, yes, I will marry you. The whole world has to know. There's no other option other than the world knowing. So much excitement. I'm telling everyone. The disciples just saw their teacher who even with their limited understanding, because they didn't have the spirit yet, and if you don't believe that kind of uh, idea of the disciples' knowledge or their epistemology of, of who Christ was, just look and read at the end of the book of Luke as he's resurrected, walking next to some of his disciples who can't even tell that it's him. And so even with the knowledge they have attained from by listening to him and being with him and seeing all the miracles, now, as I said, the veil is pulled back and they see Christ in his glory. And by the way, that whole whole part of that narrative is is looking back to this imagery of the Old Testament of Moses going to the mountaintop and Moses coming down with his face shining and the people ask them to to put a hood on or or put a mask on Moses so we don't see the shine. They've just seen the unbelievable. At the very least, they're like, I can't wait to brag to the other disciples because they didn't get chosen to come see this. And so Jesus, as a response, as they're coming down, he orders them for the fifth and final time in the gospel according to Matthew, say nothing. Ever had a secret that you just was driving you crazy? Imagine that. These three coming down. Tell no one. It's the fifth time Jesus will tell either all of the disciples or a group like here to say nothing of a miracle or a teaching. And as such, we see this head-scratching moment. Tell no one the vision. Until when? Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Certainly, the disciples would have had their own ideas of what this meant. 
They had just been told that he was Messiah. They have also know that he said he had to go die. And yet now that he was shown clearly in some type of revelation of, of at least an unveiling that he was more than just a man. And then now they're coming down, energized, infused by what they've just seen. The fear that they felt was relieved only when they looked up to Jesus and their eyes saw him alone. Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So Jesus commands them to say nothing until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus is acknowledging some things that he's been doing these last few chapters giving himself the designation Son of Man, which was a messianic title, something that was, was a not wishy-washy in any way about how he was describing himself to people. One of, the, one of the most erroneous claims of people who are not Christian or liberal Christians, which is not Christian, because they would deny many things that are essential to Christianity, the virgin birth, sin nature, the uniqueness and reliability of the scripture, all those things get jettisoned. That That is a non-Christian, that isn't um, loose Christianity or liberal Christianity. It's paganism. And so, as such, tells them, the Son of Man, who is Messiah, who is God, is raised from the dead. He's emphasizing one thing that he had just mentioned. He has to go to Jerusalem to die. But also in that phrase, that messianic title, but saying must be raised from the dead, he's acknowledging his death, but he's also acknowledging the fact that it has no power over him because he will be raised from the dead. Post-resurrection Christianity has always held to the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, As the moment, that moment, the fact that that is a historical fact, that Jesus was raised from the dead. History is important when it comes to Christianity. The fact that the body was no longer in the tomb is a matter of history. And so this event will be pointed back to by Peter in the first sermon that he mentions. He mentions in Acts chapter 2 that This man, this Jesus, whom you killed and was raised from the dead. Paul will give a a testimony of the fact that Jesus was seen by hundreds after he was resurrected. Luke account that I mentioned earlier, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's walking with them and they're trying to talk about this Jesus who died, but some are saying he was resurrected and he's like, hello. All of this idea, this account that Jesus was resurrected in his resurrection is what's going to be the main proof, the historic proof of his theological idea of who Messiah is, pointing to the fact that no man can be raised in the manner that Messiah will be raised. And his resurrection marks who he is. And so, why would he tell his disciples 
tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. We're acknowledging that he's Messiah in a post-resurrection Christianity that we are a part of. And that he's raised from the dead. And that's the promise for all of those who will be, who are in Christ, is the resurrection of the dead. But why tell no one? Now, because it's not listed, my suggestions are highly speculative, but with, I would say, enough proof to at least make them worth offering to you. The first reason I would say that tell no one that we see in these five instances, and we see it through other Gospels as well, even when Jesus will heal people and tell them, don't tell anyone. There certainly seems to be this aspect of God's timing in all of these aspects of the revealing and the fullness revealing of who Christ is. There also seems to be an aspect of a need to crush at all times what was a a pervasive and destructive idea that is often called political messianism meaning is a political Messiah figure. And if there was a culture in any age that struggled with that, it was this first century Judaism. In Acts, Gamaliel will stand up and say, hey, remember when that guy had some followers and he stood up and he died and they all scattered? And remember the other guy? He came up and he gathered some people and he died and they all scattered? So, too, if this is not true, these men, these followers of Jesus of Nazareth will scatter. But if it's from God, then we'll find ourselves contending against God. And so the reality was is that this idea of zealotry and this, this political Messiah, someone who's going, and by political I mean this person's going to come in and conquer our, in a pragmatic way, conquer the physical enemies of Israel. And that would have included, and it would have depended on which religious party you asked. Who are the enemies? Everyone would have agreed Rome. At the very least, Rome will be destroyed and kicked out of Jerusalem. Okay, great. But let's not forget the Herodian Jews because they're a little too Romish for our taste. So for sure the Herodians would have to go if you asked the Pharisees and if you asked the Zealots and the Essenes. But the Sadducees were also more of a political group than the others, and they'd have been like, oh, the Herodians could have stayed. But then if you ask the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Essenes, well, the the Sadducees are sounding kind of political. Well, then probably Messiah needs to get rid of them too. But then if you go even further, the Zealots would have been like, you know, the Pharisees are not really gung-ho enough about all this. We could really push this beyond the borders of Rome. So let's throw the Pharisees out too. And then there's the Essenes in their caves going, you know what? The Zealots are still marrying people and having children. They don't quite get it either. Let's get rid of them. They all had different ideas of who this political Messiah was, but they all had this essential truth. Rome must go. He must come and be a carrier of a sword, and that sword is going to drip blood of our enemies, and the enemies will push out so that once again Israel will be clear to worship as God clearly designed us to. 
Never mind the irony that five religious parties that made up the leaders of religious thinking in Judaism contended with one another and had different ideas about what Messiah was. But one thing was for sure, what permeated all of them was this figure would come in, destroy God's enemies. More than likely who Barabbas was. He was more than likely a zealot. Even to accentuate my point is that the destruction of the temple, what will lead to it by Rome destroying the temple in 70 AD is obviously God's sovereign hand in destroying the temple, which is the last prophecy that Jesus will give. But it's also because zealots rose up and said, we're going to kick out Rome. They were looking for a physical political figure that would lead them in rebellion to prove who they were. It was pervasive and it was destructive and it blinded them to the reality of what the scripture said. And I dare say, if there's anything more destructive and pervasive in 21st century evangelical conservative Christianity, it is a pursuit of some type of political messiah. Don't believe me? I dare you to scroll through some sermons on YouTube and just put in Trump as Savior. Don't laugh. It's a reality. I'm not here to tell you vote for this or vote for that. But you have jettisoned the great reality of who we are in Christ. If you think any man or woman is going to come in to some type of political office and lead America back to the golden age, whatever that is in your definition, that is clown shoes theology. And yet, it is everywhere in evangelical Christianity. And it might be even in some of you. Really need to get the word out. Really need to make sure that we're going to get this person voted in. The most important thing I can talk about all my friends, family, co-workers, is to make sure they know who to vote for. That's great. I want to make sure double your conversations, though, are that you're talking to those people about real hope. Jesus Christ came to die. He doesn't mention political movements other than pay your taxes. He doesn't ever once announce the overthrow of Rome or tell his disciples to do the same. If we're going to be honest with where we are historically in the church in the United States, in the evangelical, pseudo-reformed, really confused, some are charismatic, some are not, independent, maybe Presbyterian, maybe not world that we envelop, it's a cancer. 
first and foremost, we are to worship God on the Lord's day. We come in with our mind jettisoned of all the other stuff that burden us day in and day out. The bills, the house is falling apart. I might lose my job. My child is very sick. I just lost my spouse. The real hard realities of life and the reality that no political figure is going to help you in the midst of any of them. Only Christ. You've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. You've been given spiritual gifts for the primary reason of, look around you, strengthening the other people in your local assembly to the glory of God. You've been put in a part of the church universal. Well, as a whole, looks at history from a different lens than those who are in unbelief. The world is filled with death and decay and ruin and war. And we're supposed to be people that share hope with each other. And there is no hope in just some man or woman. There is only hope in Christ. And now let me offer you something. I'm not saying don't be engaged. I'm not saying retreat from political conversation or commentary. What I'm saying is put your hope in proper order. Put your priorities in proper order. The United States of America, Canada, Mexico, Central South America, all of the world is made better only by the church being the church, sharing the gospel, knowing that the word does not come back void, knowing that God will call his people to himself. And while a citizen of whatever country you might be a part of, be a responsible citizen. In any dialogue that you might have on political areas that we should all have a voice on, we're all able to have a voice on in this country, it should be done first and foremost under the foundation of I am a sinner redeemed, not by my own work, but by the grace of God, a triune God who is unchanging and incorruptible. And I am the opposite of all that. And now this person sitting across from me, whose ideas, I might think, are mildly insane, is a shared image bearer. Most often our views on how to change the world, much like the disciples, we have our own ideas. And those ideas often stop and start with what we desire. Make sure your priorities are right. So when the disciples asked him in verse 10, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So what the disciples respond to this idea of not being able to tell anyone about this vision until after 
the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Matthew and Mark has a little bit a different kind of, of, of wording to it. I'm going to just turn there real quick. It's the same dialogue. Uh, it's in Mark chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. If you care to mark it or, or look at it. It has this added line. Well, starting in 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And then they asked him the same thing we just read. So in, in 9, 10, and Mark, there's this inclusion of this, this dialogue, essentially, that happens with the disciples, that even they're questioning, what exactly did he mean by saying that, that the Son of Man will be raised from the dead? And so what they say is that you're talking about Messiah, but the scribes are those who were in charge of, of inter- interpreting and, and translating um, the, the Old Testament, they say that Elijah must come, meaning Elijah must precede Messiah. This comes from Malachi 4.5, which we've read several times through the beginning of, of Matthew, and it just is as one of the phrases, and that is, behold, I will send you Elijah. Of course, this is, this is hundreds of years after Elijah is taken up in a chariot of fire in heaven. And so it was always understood that there would be a prophet like Elijah who was going to come and, and precede the one, the, the son of man, uh, the suffering servant, uh, the one after that, that, that would be in the line of David. But do you catch it? The disciples who have been with Christ all along and chapters earlier even were taught on who and how important John the Baptist was, stop and ask the question, but isn't Elijah supposed to come first? Even the disciples missed it. When John comes in the beginning of all of these Gospels and begins preach or, or telling Israel to repent, for the kingdom is near or the kingdom is at hand, meaning the kingdom is following me, And he was the Elijah, the prophet who is going to return. And it says, restore all things. And and the word or the phrase that are used in the Greek, it's it's the idea of of restoring a relationship to, to where it once was. And so he's coming to an Israel that's completely lost its way. And John is telling them to repent because kingdom is near. He's wanting Israel to be restored. He's trying to be the forerunner and point them to the fact that Messiah is coming. And we know that John had many followers. But what does Jesus say? I tell you, he's already come. And they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they pleased. He will say earlier in this gospel and the other gospels that he was greater than any man born of woman. This forerunner, this in in the this one the world was not worthy of. The one that Israel would have and should have been waiting for, should have recognized but sinful and broken 
and self-focused and concerned about keep each political party keeping their own territory and building their power base. The people themselves kept ignorant. They did to him whatever they pleased. So also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. The prophets of the Old Testament, particularly in Elijah's time period, had a very short lifespan. The ones that were saying, stop bowing down to the altars of Baal. Stop offering your children as sacrifices to Molech. Stop sending your daughters to be servants of Ashtaroth. And kings of Israel would have them killed. And the people would not listen to them. Elijah at one point thinks there's no one left. No prophets left. They're all dead. I'm the only one. God, in a paraphrase, tells him to quit crying. That he's kept a remnant. Jeremiah will plead with an evil king. Surrender to the king of Babylon, not because he's great, but because God is going to put us in exile for our idol worship. Surrender and lives will be spared. He's thrown in a dungeon. Hebrews, the author, goes through this whole awful declaration of the ones that God used to call his people to repentance throughout the history of Israel were put to death by the very people that God sent them to call to repentance. And so it isn't a surprise that John the Baptist's life is treated as nothing. He tells a wicked king, you're not allowed to take that man's wife as your wife. You already have a wife. You're breaking the law. And on a whim of a girl dancing that he liked to watch and to see, he killed this last prophet of the Old Testament. And now Jesus again, in this short section, tells his disciples twice Not just who he is in the Son of Man designation. Tells him twice what awaits him. Going to raise from the dead, meaning I'm going to be killed, which I warned you about earlier, and now I'm going to suffer at their hands, just like John. Which is, to the final point, I am going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And the disciples still won't get it. And it won't be until the resurrection... And even then they'll need convincing. Even with a resurrected Christ before them, some will doubt. But then Christ ascends back to glory, back to the right hand of the Father, awaiting the time that he will return. 
He intercedes on behalf of those who are in him, the ones the Father has given to him. And they send the Holy Spirit to indwell the church and this group of seemingly hard to understand disciples become empowered by the Spirit, emboldened by the truth of the gospel, regenerated in their heart and their minds by the Spirit, yet always acknowledging their battle and their war with, that they wage against their own flesh. And they boldly proclaim, this one, this Christ who died, has raised again. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and we, the church, in post-resurrection ascension church history, our lives are defined by that. We don't get to claim as the disciples that I didn't have the spirit yet. If there was a journal that any of them wrote that maybe will be found somewhere is like, in my defense, I didn't have the spirit yet. And yet, what do our lives look like? How often in decisions that you make, words that come flying out of your mouth, sins seemingly defeated, somehow failing in, how much recognition do you need of the great power sin has over you? We're to live lives that reflect our identity. Our identity is in Christ. That means everything that comes through our life is filtered through that relational reality. That all of me, my hobbies, my desires, and all these things come secondary to glorifying God in Christ. Therefore, all of life has to go through this filter of where you find your identity, which is in Christ. And you'll see it in the lives of these disciples as we move through the book of Acts. And I pray you see it in one another and your own life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, I pray that we would pursue you in earnestness. God, that we'd recognize our own sinfulness and we would hold fast to the truth of your word. Lord, let us be bound together one to another in full acknowledgement of our shared union we have in Christ. And he has called us to fellowship and familial relationships with one another to bear each other's burdens, to encourage, and yes, rebuke when necessary. God, may you be glorified in our midst, in our continued worship. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.